So this morning, uh, we are continuing in our series, What Christmas Meant. And throughout the past few weeks in this Christmas season, we have been looking at um, how Christmas meant to specific people, particularly those who are mentioned in the Christmas story in the scriptures. And we have been journeying through looking at what Christmas meant to Herod, what Christmas meant to Mary, what Christmas meant to Joseph. This morning, we're going to look at what Christmas meant to the shepherds. But before I get to that, what I find so fascinating about the Christmas story that we kind of repeat every single year um, around this time in the church, not only here at Summit Ridge, but in churches all, all around the world, is that the Christmas story that we are familiar with, the Christmas story that we read about, is only shared in two out of the four Gospels. It's only shared by specifically Matthew and Luke. Now here's the thing, is that Matthew was an original follower of Jesus. He was one of the original 12, a Jewish person, which is why if you've ever read Matthew 1, which I don't know if you have, but if you had, it starts out with a genealogy. Dating all the way back, I think, to Adam and Eve, or definitely to Noah. And what is, you know, and you look at that, and why in the world is Matthew starting out with a genealogy? Because he is mostly writing to a Jewish audience, and therefore is telling his Jewish audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament prophesied about. Jesus is the fulfillment. And that is what is just so fascinating. Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience, one of the original 12 disciples. And then there's Luke, who was not one of the original 12. In fact, he was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. He was the one that went with the Apostle Paul and journeyed with him through all of his travels that that the Apostle Paul went on, all of his missionary journeys and everything like that. And, And in fact, Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile, a physician by occupation. And so what is fascinating is that we look at these two stories that they share, and that's, if you put them together, how we get our Christmas story. Now, Mark doesn't start at all with the birth narrative. In fact, he cuts right to John prophesying in the wilderness. That's where he starts. And John, John doesn't give any inclination, really. He just starts off with the Word, and the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. You know, that's how he approaches his gospel. And so what is fascinating is that you can look at how these two people, Matthew and Luke, wrote about the Christmas story and how each might have been similar, but there were some differences as well. You see, Luke was writing not necessarily to a Gentile audience in general, but to one particular person by the name of Theophilus. Now, we don't know who this Theophilus was. There are some theories. I'll share some of them with you. One theory is is that he was a Gentile, an influential Gentile person. Um, and so he had some pull with other people. And so the, he, you know, Luke is sharing with him, not only his gospel, but also the book of Acts, which Luke wrote as well, um, is, is sharing with Theophilus all about what is going on and all about Jesus Christ and all about the workings of not only the disciples, but also of his church as well. That's one theory. Another theory is that Theophilus was a, um, a, a leader, if you will, a Gentile leader of some sort um, in that time, and therefore also had influence. But here's another theory, and this is where I may, if you had to ask me where I may land, is that some believe that Theophilus was an attorney representing the Apostle Paul while he was on trial. 
And therefore, Luke, because he is so detailed in his account, because he is so detailed in what he is sharing, that actually the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are the most famous legal briefs that we have. It was used for the defense of Paul as he was on trial. Which is fascinating, if that is the case. I don't know if it is, but I tend to kind of lean towards that. It's just a fascinating perspective to have, that these two briefs that Luke writes are there to help Paul in his defense as he is put on trial for sharing the gospel. It's just unbelievable. It's a possibility. It's not necessarily true. But here's the thing, that as we look at these two gospels, Matthew mentions things such as Herod and the wise men. Luke mentions Caesar Augustus, the shepherds, Simeon, and Hannah. And yet, there is similarities, and yet there are differences. There are differences. So this morning, as we look at the shepherds, I think I want to help us understand and maybe try to help us understand that there are differences as to what Christmas meant to the shepherds. Okay? And by the way, Matthew doesn't mention the shepherds, but Luke does. And it's a fascinating story. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to read the passage that mentions the shepherds out of Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 20. And it's a familiar story if you have been in church for any length of time and are familiar with it. But here is the passage that mentions the shepherds here. It starts off this way. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him, for them rather, in the inn. In the same region, there were also some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Verse 10. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly army of angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had departed from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen him, they made known the statement about what had been told to them about this child. 
And all who heard it were amazed about the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying God and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Familiar story, amen? Now, perhaps the most common understanding of this passage, if you were to ask someone what Christmas may have meant to the shepherds, is to understand, first of all, the importance of the symbolism of being a shepherd. Being a shepherd was incredibly symbolic, if you will, of being able to lead the people of Israel. In fact, if you look at some of the great leaders of Israel, almost all of them had this in common, is that they were almost all shepherds. If you look at Abraham, if you look at Moses, if you look at Jacob, if you look at David, all of these people had one thing in common, is that they were all shepherds. And in fact, in, in, in today's vernacular or in today's language, still that symbolism is still used to describe how myself and others who are pastors are to you know, care for God's people in the church. Let me share with you 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And this is somewhat of a really, really good pointed way that pastors are to behave. So you might want to pay attention to this passage to see if I'm in anywhere near what is expected of me according to the Apostle Peter. He says this, Therefore, I urge elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not with greed, but with eagerness, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That is, in many ways, the expectations of a pastor. A pastor is to shepherd the flock those that have been given under his or her care. They are to shepherd that flock. And doing so, not under compulsion or being forced to do so, but rather wanting to do so, eager to do so. And here's the other thing, not taking advantage of God's people, not being greedy, but rather just the opposite, being giving, being generous, being loving, there are expectations here that even today, the, sim the symbolism of a shepherd is still very much among us. It's a very important symbol of a shepherd. No doubt about that. And so, I, you know, as my role as a pastor, right, my role is to fulfill what the Apostle Peter has written here. And one day, yes, I will stand before Jesus Christ and I will have to give an account. And scriptures are clear about this. For those of us who are in leadership in the church, for those of us who have responsibility of care over a group of people that God has entrusted, we will have to give an account. We are held to a higher standard. That means we are held to a higher accountability. That means there is more for us that is expected of us so that when I stand before Jesus Christ, my hope is that he will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You shepherd the people I placed under your care well. I've shared this before, I'll say it again. The worst thing I would ever want to hear, I think any of us want to hear, is depart from me, you evil one, for I never knew you. So my job, and, I, and I, I've shared this before, I'll share it again, is, man, I want, to, I want to pastor this way, and I hope I am pastoring this way. If I'm not pastoring this way, I have to be held account to that. And the same goes for Pastor Wheezy and Pastor Eric, right? So now we have other people to blame. You can't just blame me, <laughs> right? We get to share the criticism and the load and all that kind of stuff. But there is a real, real responsibility here that we are called to lead all of you safely, and to protect you even sacrificially. John Ortberg, um, pastor and author, says this, and I like the way he kind of phrased this, almost kind of a summary of 1 Peter in many ways. He says this, God has entrusted us, that being pastors, with his most precious treasure, people. Do you understand that you all are God's most precious treasure? People? You are God's most precious treasure. He asks us to shepherd and mold them into strong disciples with brave faith and good character. That's the symbolism here. That's the weight in which, as we read Luke 2, that, that when I think of the shepherds, I think of the weight and the symbolism of all that is there. Now, here's the thing. Between kind of the Old Testament, moving into the New Testament, where we now find Luke, there has been a change that has taken place among the idea of and 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 the kind of um, respect if you will that that shepherds maybe have once held that they no longer hold you see by the time we come to luke 2 shepherds were not viewed with a great amount of respect in fact just the opposite shepherds were viewed as being unclean therefore they couldn't participate in temple worship so therefore they were outcasts because they were constantly among the animals um, not only that, they were considered to be thieves because, you know, robbing among shepherds was apparently somewhat of a common thing to steal sheep from one another. So they were considered thieves and they were considered untrustworthy. So much so that as the women of that day, shepherds were not to be called as witnesses when there was a trial because their testimony would be considered not trustworthy. That's how despised they were. And in fact, in the Mishnah, which are just oral teachings of the Torah, okay, it was told that shepherds, you were never to keep flocks within the city limits. You were never to keep flocks within the village limits. Rather, you were to only keep flocks in the wilderness. In fact, so reviled they were that they couldn't even be within the city limits at all or anything else like that. that they had to keep out, keep away from everyone else. And so that was kind of the reputation, if you will, that the shepherds of this day had. And so the angels appearing to the shepherds, one possible meaning is that, oh my word, the, the, the angel, the chief angel, Gabriel, we assume, is the one who appeared to the shepherds out in the fields as they were watching their flock, all of a sudden now telling them, hey, the birth of Jesus Christ has happened. Go and see that we could possibly understand that their reaction to this, and maybe what Christmas meant to them, was that out of all the people that were told about the birth of Jesus Christ, and out of all the people that could have known and should have known, and maybe you could have been higher up on the rungs 
of society to have known the birth of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. Out of all the people that could have been shared this great news, it wasn't the kings necessarily. It wasn't the religious leaders. Rather, it was one of the lowest groups of people on society's rung that were shared this great news that a Savior has been born in the city of David, Bethlehem, and now you could imagine them saying, oh my word, I have lived my entire life being told I am unworthy, being told I'm unclean, being an outcast and looked over. And what Christmas means to me is that I am no longer that way because I have been told this wonderful news. Amen, right? That's a beautiful message. I wish I could end it there. That's not the message. It, it, it is a message, obviously. Hear me on this. <laughs> Okay, you are worthy. The gospel is clear. You are worthy. I am worthy, regardless of who we are. That Jesus says to us, no matter who you are, you may have been looked over, you may have been considered an outcast, you may have been just considered just throwaway, you may have been just, you know, just the lowest person on the rung. Maybe it was in your family, maybe it's at your work, maybe it's among your friends, whatever it is. And by the way, if that's true among your friends, get new friends. Um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and if you need a new family, we'll be your family. Um, you know, and so I just want to say that and say, yes, the gospel says to you, you are worthy. Jesus loves you. You are worthy. I don't think that's the message here necessarily. It can be. Here's why. Hang with me, okay? It's a good message, I hope. Okay? Here's why. Yes, it's true. According to the Mishnah, you could not have flocks in the city limits. Yes, it's true that flocks had to be kept out in the wilderness. Yes, it's true that shepherds were the lowest rung on the so on one of the lowest rungs on the social ladder, if you will, of that day. However, there was one exception. There was one exception. Not a big exception, but there was one exception. And that is the flocks that were used as sacrifices in the temple. That is, the shepherds who were tending to those flocks were a little bit higher on the rung. Not by much, but a little bit higher on the rung than what we might think of an ordinary shepherd. You see, the reason is that this is, might be the possibility is that the shepherds that are talked about here are not the ordinary everyday shepherds we think of, but rather these probably were the temple shepherds who were tending to the flock of sheep while, yes, they were outside the city limits of Bethlehem, they were not in the wilderness. And yes, while they were not necessarily within the confines of what, we, what was considered okay in those days, it was, they were still there, very close. You see, these shepherds were in many ways priests or assistants to the priests. These shepherds, their full responsibility was to watch over the flock because these flocks of sheep had a very particular and specific role that was designated for them. And that is, they were to be sacrificed, particularly on the day of Passover. In fact, in some ways we are told that there was even a watchtower close to Bethlehem on the way to Jerusalem. It was called the Magdal Eder in which shepherds could go up into this tower and watch over the flocks and, and make sure that the flocks were safe, make sure the flocks were attended. And by the way, the sheep that they oversaw were not typically the sheep that other shepherds oversaw because there were specific sheep that were used and designated only 
for the sacrifice at the temple. And by the way, you didn't sacrifice these specific sheep on every occasion. No, these sheep were most likely designated exclusively for Passover. Think about that. Don't miss the symbolism. They're out there watching these, 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 these sheep, and an angel appears to them and says what? What does the angel say? Great joy is brought to you today. And says, for today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then a multitude of angels appeared, and this is what they said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. You see, I think the symbol here was much different. And, and the symbol here isn't so much that they are worthy. They, that wasn't necessarily what I think was the main message, although that was an important part of it. What I think the main message was is that the job you are doing, the, the sheep that you are attending, there will be one day now, and it's not yet, but it's coming soon, that you will no longer have to do this job anymore. These sacrificial sheep are no longer going to be needed. The Savior of the world has come. Eternal, everlasting peace is now possible. Instead of the peace that requires us every single year to sacrifice, 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 the ultimate sacrifice of the world for all of mankind has come. And there is now everlasting peace. You know what I find so amazing is that when the shepherds heard this message, they went straight to Bethlehem. How did they know where to find the baby Jesus? Right? We, th we, we know about the star, right, that was out there. Yeah, but the problem with that was, is that was two years later. That was for the wise men. That's told by Matthew. Luke doesn't mention the wise men. He mentions the shepherds. Chances are the shepherds knew exactly where Jesus was. Why? Because he was in one of their stables where they would have kept the sheep. There's only a certain number of stables that were there. They would have known exactly where Jesus was and where to find him because, hey, he's in one of our stables where we would have kept the sheep. Now think about this. The Savior of the world, the one who has been born is born in a stable that kept the sacrificial sheep that was used to sacrifice on Passover, that was visited by the shepherds who tended those very sheep, and to say, I'm going to be out of a job soon. I'm going to be unemployed. Amen? What did the Christmas story mean to the shepherds? Peace. Finally, I don't have to keep doing this. Finally, we don't have to keep sacrificing. Finally, we don't have to keep doing this over and over and over again. The ultimate sacrifice, the, the shepherd, the Lamb of God has come and he will sacrifice himself. And therefore, no other sacrifice will ever be needed. No other sacrifice will ever suffice. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. The peace of God has come. And you know what I find so amazing is that Jesus, the, 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 the angels say this, is that he comes and he says, peace among people with whom he is pleased. Already God says, I'm already pleased with you. And yet this hasn't all taken place yet with Jesus dying on the cross. 
I have sent Jesus to you because I love you. I am pleased with you. And by the way, there is now a way that will forever make peace between you and me. Amen. I just couldn't imagine what that must have been like for the shepherds to realize, oh my word, everything that we have been told, everything in the scriptures that have been shared with us, it is now happening. It is now coming. We knew a Savior would come, and now He is here. And not only do we have the shepherds who obeyed and went and saw Jesus, now we have the first evangelists. They're the ones who went out and told everyone else, hey, guess what? I'm going to be out of a job. I'm going to be unemployed because you know what? Jesus has come. The Savior of the world has come and now there is going to be everlasting peace. I can't imagine their employers were happy about it. But they certainly were. Absolute, unbelievable peace. Scripture talks a lot about this peace. But I want to share with you one passage. It's out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, and it says this. For it was the Father's good pleasure. I, I, if you have a Bible with you, and if you're not afraid to write in it because you think God will judge you for doing so, he won't. Um, you can write in your Bible. I would encourage you, underline it was for his good pleasure. Understand God's motive in all of this to save us was not because he looked around and said, well, I guess there's nothing better to do. Well, I guess there's no other option. Well, I better do the right thing. No, God's motive for all of this was because he loved us. And Colossians, again, affirms that. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Everything that Jesus wanted at the beginning, he wants again, and it's going to happen. And that's for us to be with him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let me say this. The birth of Jesus Christ introduced the peace of God. The death on the cross sealed it. Sealed it. Where we as human beings always are born with a posture that is bent away from God. That is automatically we are born enemies of God. That the birth of Jesus Christ begins the process of peace with him. And the cross seals that peace. The shepherds, I think, were the first ones to say, absolutely, peace. I am done sacrificing. I am done with mutilating and you know, killing sheep. I am done doing all of this. I am finished. This is disgusting. I don't like this. This is awful work. I am done. I am done. I don't have to be unclean anymore. I can be made whole now because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and all of this. And all of this. Amen. Amen. Jonathan Edwards defines peace this way. The foundation of the Christian's peace is everlasting. It never, ever stops. It's everlasting. It's eternal. It is what no time, no change can destroy. It will remain when the body dies. It will remain when the mountains depart and the hills shall be removed and when the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. The fountain of his comfort shall never be diminished and the stream shall never be dried. 
His comfort and joy is a living spring in the soul, a well of water springing up to everlasting life. That's a beautiful picture of peace. Beautiful picture of peace. It will never end. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to share with you this morning. If you have not yet made peace with Jesus, let me tell you how you can do it. And by the way, you don't have to sacrifice an animal. Or for that matter, anything. All you need to do is believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Now, it will cost you. That's a different kind of sacrifice to follow him. But the first step is to believe in him. To actually say, Jesus, I am so sorry for the things I have done against you. I am so sorry for how I have broken this relationship with you. I am so sorry for the pain and the hurt I have caused you. Please forgive me. And then to allow him to heal you. To have peace with him. To have peace with him. If you believe that in a God that is out there wanting to just smite you for, for no other reason, just because he can, I hope you understand that is not the God of this Bible. That is not Jesus. If you believe in a God that is just looking for ways to see what you're going to mess up and do wrong and zap you as a result of it, that is not the God of this Bible. That is not Jesus Christ. If you believe in a God who wants nothing more than just to be left alone or more than that, for you just, just to not do anything to mess up or screw up because then you're going to make them really angry. If you believe in a God that is just angry all the time, that is not the God of the Bible. That is not Jesus. Jesus came to bring peace once and for all. The sacrificial system that was so common in those days and the things we do in our own mind today, right? Some of the things I do in my own mind, even today when I know better is this. When I do something wrong, I think I need to do three rights to make up for that one wrong, right? Even today, I still sometimes think that, oh, I need to do this. Then it'll make it better. Then I can feel better about myself because I've done these three good things, right? And it's still, I still can't resist the temptation for it to be a mathematical equation in which I hope at the end the scales of the good things that I've done versus the bad things I've done are like this. That's not the equation in the kingdom of God. It just isn't. There is nothing you and I can do at all, at all, on our own to make peace except just to believe in Jesus. Jesus took care of everything else. And you know what that also means? Is if we can have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. Christmas season can sometimes, and for all the joy it has, can also be a time of tension because guess what? You're going to have to be around people that you may have some conflict with. Those family members, I heard a great quote by George Burns, the, the late comedian, right? Remember him? Some of you might. The younger generation, you will have no idea who he is. He played God, though, so this is an acceptable joke to share because he did play in a couple movies, God. Um, he said this, there is nothing more um, fulfilling in life, and I'm paraphrasing here, than to have a wonderful, large family who lives out of town. <laughs> right? Guess what? Family's coming, right? Family's coming. And there may be some that maybe you are just having some conflict with, some tension with. Peace is possible. 
peace is possible. Jesus made it so. Jesus made it so. And what is so awesome is the fact that the peace we can have now between us and the Father will never, ever go away. It is everlasting. If we have believed in Jesus, that's it. We have peace. We have peace, peace, peace. The, the promise will never change. Jesus will never show up and say, oh, I'm sorry, you got to do one more thing. It's not going to happen. That's it. And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but that is great reason for joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for the peace that you have brought. A peace that isn't shallow. A peace that doesn't ignore wrongs. A peace that doesn't ignore sin. But rather, Jesus, you faced it head on and dealt with it so that we could have hope, so that we could have everlasting peace with you. And Jesus, what is so amazing is the fact that you did this because you wanted to, because it brought you great pleasure to do so, because you love us. I pray, Jesus, this morning that for anyone out there who may not have quite embraced this yet, I pray that today they would of how much you love them, how much you love us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your everlasting peace. It's your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.